disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about it, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So uh, that's our, our passage. And there are three types of people in this chapter, I think. Firstly, we have the unbelievers that um, John referred to in last week's passage, uh, verses 41 and 52. We see references there to um, the Jews, as John referred to them, although obviously most of the people in this audience were Jews, but he used that term often in his gospel to refer to unbelievers. So we have unbelievers. Secondly, we have the true believers. And thirdly, we have an in-between group where it's not really clear what they believed. And I think we have the same types of people today, don't we? We've seen the second and the third types of people in the passage that we've just read, and they're both called disciples. They look the same, and they were all following Jesus from place to place, and they were all watching and listening to what he had to say, and they all wanted something from Jesus, believing that he was special. So what is it that differentiates these two groups of people? Quite simply, it was their response to the message, the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 12 that his teaching causes division. And that's what John is showing us here. A division between two different types of disciple. A division in what they did and why they did it. One group turned back, that's what they did. And the reason why was because they did not truly believe in him. When these fringe disciples were asked to look beyond the novelty of what they initially saw in Jesus, to consider what he expected of them, as we saw in verse 60, they just couldn't accept it. And they couldn't see how anyone else would accept it either. The other group, is represented by Peter's statement in verse 68, which um, I'll come back to later, but these are the genuine believers. So we can see that John's using the word disciples in a very loose sense, isn't he, to cover different types of people, genuine followers, hangers-on, and perhaps even some with more sinister intentions. And Likewise today, among all the people who call themselves Christians, even those who go to church regularly, there are believers and there are unbelievers and there are some who just don't know 
what they believe. Um, and as we see in verse 64, Jesus knows which is which. So why would someone be a follower without being a true believer? I suppose you could ask the same question about those who follow people on Twitter and other social media sites. It depends. It depends on what you believe about the person um, that you're following, what you know about what they believe, and to what extent your beliefs align to their beliefs. And that would include your values, your sense of right and wrong, the things you like, the things you don't like, uh, and so on. And you could apply all those measures to our own discipleship today. And I guess it's a question we could each ask ourselves and should ask ourselves, why do we follow Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? In the crowd, there were people who followed because they were tired of Roman rule and they thought Jesus was going to lead an uprising. You know, they it said um, elsewhere that they wanted to force him to become their king. There were people, as it says in verse 26, um, who saw him as a source of free food uh, and presumably whatever else they needed. This was after they'd um, experienced the feeding of the 5,000. There were some people probably who just liked to see amazing miracles. They wanted to be entertained. And some would just follow by herd instinct, going along with the crowd, uh, happy to be to be part of it all, to be part of the Jesus movement. I think the bottom line is that both types of disciple in this passage uh, wanted something for themselves. And one group had realized that they weren't going to get it, or at least having heard the latest teaching from Jesus, a message that they couldn't understand or accept, they were losing confidence that they were going to get what they wanted. They had become disillusioned. Disillusionment could be a stumbling block for any of us, I think, depending on what attracted us to the Christian life in the first place and the extent to which we might feel let down or, or mistaken um, in that. Things which attract people to the gospel and the life of a Christian might include the personality of a minister or youth worker or church leader, people who might let us down in one way or another. Or it could be expectations of an easy Christian life, the attractiveness of the gospel of something for nothing, a gospel that doesn't expect us to work for our salvation, but does expect us to work out our salvation in lives of service. Maybe for some it's the opportunity within Christian service to have positions of dignity and respect, to be wanted and needed in one way or another. Perhaps for some it's a mistaken belief that with the Lord's protection, nothing really bad will ever happen to us. Or as I hinted earlier, there's the attractiveness of the herd to belong to a group of lovely, like-minded people. Except we know, don't we, that churches are full of sinners and it's inevitable that we'll all let the Lord down and each other at times. And that can lead to disputes and resentment and church members feeling alienated from each other. And as with other examples, all the other examples, these things can cause feelings of disillusionment. 
there are lots of other things which might contribute to the attractiveness of Christianity, but somewhere in the list, there should, of course, be the recognition of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And where that comes in the list, if it's not at the top, will have some bearing on the kind of Christian we are and how we react when some of the other stuff doesn't work out quite as we expected. And that might be a turning point, just as it was for the disciples. Some turned back and some chose to stay. For many of us, there will be a turning point in our lives, maybe several, when we get to a fork in the road and we need to choose how we're going to react to the circumstances we find ourselves in and what kind of disciple we're going to be. And the stronger we can become in our faith now, the more resilient we'll be when circumstances change, the more spiritually resilient will be and able to make the right choices and do the right thing. By the way, let me just touch on one thing that Jesus said, um, and I'm not going to analyse every verse in, in, in the passage, but there's one thing that Jesus said that um, some people think means actually we don't have a choice that we're fated to have faith or not, that we're predestined to be a true disciple or not, that it's God's choice and not ours. In verse 65, Jesus reminded them of something that he'd said earlier. In fact, let me just read the earlier verse. Verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And then in verse 65, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. The Father draws and the Father enables. So clearly what these verses are saying is that it is God who has initiated the means of our salvation. There's no way that any of us could come to God without divine intervention. But in John 12, Jesus said that he would draw all people to himself. And in John 14, although Jesus said that no one could come to the Father except through him, the invitation of John 3 says that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And of course, we know 1 Timothy 2 says that the Saviour wants all people to be saved. So there is a universal call. And there is a universal enabling, but there isn't a universal response. So to me, it's clear that we do each choose the path that we're going to take, how we're going to respond. And actually, we can see an example of that at the end of the passage, can't we? If you look at the last two verses, Jesus said that he had chosen all 12 of his closest disciples, but he knew, even at the point that he chose, that one of them, Judas, would not become a true believer. So as far as salvation is concerned, God chooses, God draws and enables those who he knows will choose him. And I think that's the best way to understand what's often referred to as the doctrine of election. Um, as it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 1, to God's elect, 
who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So I'm going to leave that point there. The subject of election is a, is a, a big subject and um, people take different views, have different understandings on it, but that's, um, that's how I understand um, these verses. Many people, I think, drift into Christianity, either via their family upbringing or other social connections, um, via a youth club maybe, or, or, or some other community involvement. And some may be especially attracted by some of the things I mentioned before, but there comes a time when we will be confronted with a turning point, when we have to decide for real if we're going to turn back or to go on. And it's so important in circumstances like we're going through now, or in any other hard times we might encounter, that we know our faith is for real. Not just real to God, and by that I mean our faith in Jesus as our, as our saviour, the faith that saves, but that it's real to us. Otherwise, the verses that we read in our Bibles just become like fortune cookies. They become feel-good quotes that don't really give us the peace and the assurance that we need. Our faith needs to be real to us. A turning point. That's what Jesus gave the disciples in verse 67. And I think it shows actually that there's no middle ground in this. Many turn back. The unbelievers, the grumblers, the discontent, those who wanted to cherry pick the teachings of the Lord. None of the 12 went with them. But that doesn't mean they didn't think about it. So Jesus asks them to decide, to say it out loud, to choose to be with him for real or to leave. It's one or the other. Now, what might that turning point look like in your life or mine. Typically, it's not when everything's going well. Job, health, family, relationships, and so on. That's when we can drift along saying that we trust in the Lord, but actually not really needing to trust him very much. But when we're hit by something, losing our job perhaps, or poor health, or financial difficulties, or bereavement, or breakdowns in relationships, pandemics, or worse, or even in church life, disillusionment in some of the things and the people that I mentioned before. That could be our turning point. When the Lord asks us, are we going to leave or will we stay and trust him? And the re response from Peter in verse 68 says it all, doesn't it? To whom shall we go? You know, that wasn't just a recognition that the grass isn't really greener on the other side. Peter wasn't saying, well, we might as well stay with you because we haven't got anywhere else to go. He went further. He said in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that's the perspective I think we need to try to cultivate in our minds. A belief in the words of our opening hymn that only Christ can satisfy. Everything else in life is fragile and does not satisfy. Not fully. Not in answer to our deepest needs. 
And I think that's what Jesus is teaching in verse 63. Not only was he explaining that what he just said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood were, were metaphors for spiritual things, he was also saying and is saying to us today that compared to the spiritual life that we have in Christ and all the promises that we have in relation to that, the things of the flesh, the things of this world, they count for nothing. They are relatively unimportant. And that's led us to the high point of the passage, the revelation given to Peter. And it's the encouragement we can all take away uh, with us today, that when the things of this world start to fall apart, as maybe you feel they are at the moment, or if we lose things or people that are important to us, or we face any other kind of difficulty, we're in the best place to weather the storm because we have the words of eternal life. We have the words of eternal life.